Matthew 9. And that uh, passage in Matthew 9 is going to be found on page 814. <coughs> if you're using the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs, if that would serve you. And as I always say, if taking one of those would serve you, please do. Uh, and if giving one of them to someone else would be a, a blessing to someone else, please take it and give it. Well, I don't know about you, but I am getting utterly sick and tired of all the political ads all over YouTube and whatever else, Instagram and Facebook too and everything. One of the things that we see a lot of things in those ads, a lot of issues that people care about, but one of the issues that is most prevalent in these ads is taxes. This person is the worst person in the world because they raised taxes. Or this person is the worst person in the world because they cut taxes for this needy area or whatever. Taxes is something that we care very much about and that affects our daily lives. But no one that I know is particularly excited about paying them. We've all generally got the impression that our tax dollars are not always used in the best way possible. And of course, you could argue that other people have situations worse or better than we do. Other cities, other counties, other states, other countries who have a different situation than we do, you could make the argument that theirs is worse or better, easier, harder. But either way, the point is no one really likes paying taxes, or at least not paying as much taxes as we do. You could always find some reason to dislike your own specific tax circumstance. Kate and I struggle mightily with discontentment about the fact that we pay a lot of self-employment tax. It seems like it's so much bigger than it used to be. But as unfavorably disposed toward the IRS as you and I might be, as much corruption as there is in our own governments, the Jews in the time of the setting of Matthew's gospel were in a situation where their government was being sanctioned by Roman government that occupied them. And so Galilee, this, this region that was a home base of Jesus' ministry, were what was, and, and other regions around it, were what is known as a client state of Rome. Think colony, although it's certainly not exactly the same, but there's some similarities there. The Jews had their own political processes and structures, but they were subservient to the Romans, when push came to shove. They were allowed to function in their own Jewishness, but they were really under the Romans. And part of what that meant for the Jews was paying taxes to Rome. Some of their money, therefore, was going right into the pockets of the Romans. Those who occupied them. Those who were often oppressive to them. And so it's quite possible that the Jews were perhaps even less favorably disposed to paying taxes than we are. At least our taxes aren't being divvied up among our own federal government and some other hypothetic foreign overlords. Not that we know of anyway. But that's the situation that the Jews were in. But add to that dynamic the reality of publicans or tax collectors in our more common vernacular, that were Jewish men who had basically sold their souls to the Romans and the corrupt Jewish government by working for them to collect those taxes that the Jews so hated to pay. Doug O'Donnell in his commentary says that tax collectors were easily the most hated men in Hebrew society. 
They were regarded as both religious, ethnic, social, political traitors. And in fact, they were often extortionists too, which means, kids, if you don't know what extortion is, it's essentially forcing someone by force to pay the price and often more than was even required. These tax collectors, these publicans, were known for lining their own pockets with the extra money that they would charge and essentially essentially steal from their fellow countrymen. And so frankly, these tax collectors should not be thought of anything akin to what we think of as the IRS. These guys were regarded more as criminal thugs akin more to a mafia casino owner. These were not good men. And the Jews, especially those who were particularly patriotic, hated these men. And their hatred for them was often more about their political pragmatism and treachery than for their dishonest and abusive methods. These tax collectors would have been officially excommunicated from synagogue. They would have been rejected from Jewish society. It's certainly plausible to think that some of these men would have been disowned by their families and all by their choice, all probably because of their greed. No one was forcing these men. I mean, I suppose anything's possible, but in general, these men were not being forced to become tax collectors. It was just a really good gig if you, knew mu- if you knew numbers and details and if you had a really seared conscience that didn't care about integrity or compassion or loving your fellow countrymen. So that's the setting in which our text lies. Matthew concluded his second group of three miracle stories in the first section of Matthew 9. Remember, there are three sections of miracle stories, three miracles in each of those Miracle story sections. We just finished the second one. And now before he gets to this third group of miracle stories, he's, he's moving into a brief autobiographical interlude. The Matthew in these verses, starting in verse 9, is him. And he says, Matthew does in verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And so right away, the Jews that Matthew was writing to, when they came to this section, probably perked up and wondered, what's going to happen? We hate these guys. And for good reason. As far as we can tell, they're corrupt, they're cruel, they're deceitful, they're treacherous. But once again, in the unexpected kingdom, the king is going to do something unexpected. And that unexpected act is going to be just the first of four actions of this unexpected king in this passage and his unexpected kingdom. The first is Jesus's sovereign call. He sees Matthew sitting in his tax booth, the place where people would line up to get their taxes paid. He sees Matthew and at the end of verse nine, he said to him, follow me. And he, Matthew, rose and followed him, Jesus. Jesus has been demonstrating his authority already in many ways. Most recently, in the passage previous, through proving his authority to forgive sins through the healing of a paralytic. 
And here, the authority of Jesus is on display once again. This time, though, through a sort of episode between the second and third group of miracle stories. Really, this passage being part one of a two-part interlude. And he demonstrates his authority again through the calling of an unlikely person to be his disciple. I mean, think about it in the context in which they lived. Jesus was approaching perhaps the one man at that moment in that place that would have seemed at least the least bit interested in him. Everyone in Capernaum was learning who Jesus was, and there always seemed to be some sort of a crowd gathering around him. But here Matthew sits in his tax booth, ostensibly just busy about the business that he had to do, not much unlike an American dream pursuing businessman today with all his attention on his money and his tasks and his plans. And Jesus targeted this guy. Don't you think that if you were reading Matthew's gospel for the first time and come to the point where Jesus passes by this tax booth and calls on this tax collector, you would be shocked? Especially since Matthew's target audience was Jewish. For so many reasons, even besides what I've already mentioned. A tax collector you wouldn't think would even have any interest in following a nomad who said just a few verses earlier had nowhere to lay his head. He was wealthy. He had everything he needed, most likely. He was getting money left and right. Why would he want to leave everything and follow this man? A tax collector would also be an unlikely candidate for a holy man because a tax collector in a holy man's group would stain the perceived holiness of that holy man. A tax collector was willing to betray Israel. What interest would he have in following Israel's Messiah? And Jesus' group of disciples was already looking pretty ragtag. Adding Matthew to it would just reduce its credibility even more. And so Matthew is very different than Jesus' other disciples, but in another way, he's just as much as an, of an undesirable as the rest of them, though from a different viewpoint. The others would have been regarded as fishermen scum. Matthew would have been regarded as tax collector slime. And so Matthew would have already been morally and religiously and even politically suspect. Some of Jesus' followers and the Jews thought that Jesus had come to work political upheaval. And so why are you bringing this tax collector to be part of our group? He hates Israel. Look what he's done to our people. And religiously, this man was willing to forsake all of what he was brought up to believe. Why would you bring him with us? At least the fishermen were, as far as anyone else knew, pretty regular religious Jewish men. But this call came from the king of the unexpected kingdom, and so of course it would include an unexpected disciple. But even more importantly, this, came, this call came from the sovereign king with all authority. And so of course this man would have to obey his call. And that's the point here. When Jesus exercises his authority and calls someone, they come. It says, he said to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew rose 
and followed him. And in Luke's gospel, he adds the detail that he, leaving everything, followed him. That's what results from the sovereign call of Christ. When Jesus exercises authority over a sinner and calls him to follow him, that sinner leaves everything and follows him. He leaves everything behind. He leaves this world behind. He leaves his sin and his uh, uh, occupation at times behind and follows him. It is an effectual call. It is an authoritative call. The Apostle Paul would later say in his second letter to Timothy that God called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the world even began. And so the call to follow Jesus is a sovereign call, and the effectual result of that call is as miraculous as the calming of a sea the exorcism of a demon, or the healing of a paralytic, and the proclamation of forgiveness. It is the sovereign, conquering call to a sinful man to follow him. So friends, I ask, if Christ can conquer the sinful affections of a man like Matthew, can't he overcome the resistance of your friend, your family member, that child for whom you've been praying for years. My friends, no one is too far removed from the grace of Christ and from the call of Christ. One's current disinterest in God does not necessarily represent God's disinterest in them. And so even though Matthew was busy about his business, perhaps not interested at all in Jesus and his mission, Jesus conquered him, Jesus called him, and he followed. So everyone in the world is just one sovereign call from God away from turning to Jesus in repentance, no matter how far off they may seem. And so, friends, keep praying. Keep praying for your children. Keep praying for your neighbors, for your coworkers, for your family members for your friends. Keep sharing the gospel with them every chance you get. Don't give up on anyone. The call of Christ is a sovereign one. And Matthew's call out of this tax collector, out of his vocation, into the family of God, and even into Jesus's inner circle of disciples and apostles is an astonishing display of the grace and mercy of God. And Matthew serves as an example of God's mercy to sinners who deserve judgment. And so Jesus calls Matthew, the author of this gospel, and Matthew follows him. And then in verse 10, we see an abrupt scene change. Again, Mark and Luke give us some added detail. They tell us that it's Matthew's house that they're in. And notice in verse 10, that Jesus is not only calling a tax collector to follow him, now he's actually hanging out with many tax collectors. As if calling one wasn't bad enough, now Jesus is dining with a bunch of them. And so that's the, the second action we see here from Jesus in this passage. We see the scandalous grace of Jesus. From the perspective of a typical Jewish person, Jesus had no business 
being in this house of a tax collector with many other tax collectors. Now, who knows all the details of the situation here, but Matthew is a tax collector, and now there's many. So it seems like Matthew has invited his co-workers to meet this guy. But it's even more scandalous than that, because not only are there many tax collectors, there are also sinners. You say sinners, big deal, everyone is a sinner. Well, sure, but sinners in this context almost certainly is grouping together anyone and everyone who were known for breaking the rules of proper conduct according to Jewish law and tradition. And so these were people with reputations. They were known as sinners. Certainly everyone is a sinner, but they had reputations of a flagrant breach of the moral law, a flagrant breach of the scribal traditions of the Jews. And so we're probably talking about drunks, prostitutes, thieves, whatever else you can think of in terms of publicly known sins, as well as just anyone who was not strictly adherent to the code. In other words, these people were unclean. And in verse 10, the very beginning of one, it says, Jesus reclined at table in the house. Luke 5 goes, goes a little farther and says that Matthew made a great feast. And that is significant because in Jewish culture, having a meal at someone's house was significant, but it probably looked pretty similar to what ours looks like. If you're going over someone's house uh, for dinner sometime this week, you'll sit at a table, you'll pass the food around, you'll share in some pleasant conversation, hopefully. But a great feast would have looked a lot different. And that is why the the phrase here, reclined at table, is being used in Matthew 9, verse 10. The reclining at table was the customary posture for a special occasion. Jesus is not just sitting at the table. Rather, they would have been around the table sort of sprawled out luxuriously with even their feet potentially behind them and facing the table, perhaps laying on couches or even just cushions or blankets on the floor facing the table. This was a celebratory, luxurious sort of posture and evidently a rather large gathering and a feast. And so this is not just the friendly meal that you might have with with one of your fellow members at some point this week. This is more of a dinner party. And for Jesus to do this was therefore a clear statement of association with these people. In fact, recline at table is the exact same language that Jesus used in Matthew 8, just a few verses ago, in verses 10 through 12, when Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion and says, With no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. So this is the precise language that Jesus used to describe the coming day when the kingdom of heaven would include a messianic banquet where his people of faith would be welcomed. And so engaging in the action of reclining at table at a dinner party like this was a sign of identification 
association, you might even say a kind of familiarity and intimacy. And so this was scandalous anyway, if he was just sitting at an ordinary table with these people because of what it meant to hang out with people like this. But it was even more scandalous than a regular meal would have been because of the nature of this event. And so doing this would have brought Jesus in the eyes of unknowing observers perilously close to himself becoming unclean. What is he doing, they would say. He's not distancing himself from these dirty, sleazy, worldly, sinful people. He's spending relational time with them. These were, in the eyes of the quote-unquote good and godly people, the worst of the worst. And the fact that it would have actually been no surprise to see tax collectors hanging out with these kinds of people should also be instructive to us. The tax collectors hung out with these kinds of people. And I think John Calvin makes a really good point when he says that the tax collectors did not disdain to associate with persons of that description for... As moderate correction produces shame and humiliation in transgressors, so excessive severity drives some persons to despair, makes them leave off all shame, and abandon themselves to wickedness. So when the publicans saw themselves cast off as ungodly and detestable, they sought consolation in the society of those who did not despise them, on account of the bad and disgraceful reputation which they shared. So I think what Calvin is saying is that part of the reason that these tax collectors would have gone so far off the deep end is that the Jews had excluded them and they had despised them so much that they were pushed right into the arms of sinners. I think that is a cautionary tale for us about what can result from our harsh, judgmental regard for those whose sins we think of as particularly bad. I think this should remind us that when our children rebel and sin, we need to remember that it is the kindness of God that draws men to repentance, not the anger of their mothers and fathers. I think it should remind us to think of the lost sinners of this world who engage in all kinds of depravity and debauchery as those in needs of God's grace and mercy, not our scorn, not our disdain, not our judgment. And of course, this is exactly the failure of the Pharisees here. They show up on the scene next. They are not glad that these sinners are spending time with someone who might be able to teach them. No, instead, we see in verse 11 that they are pridefully, self-righteously, judgmentally disturbed and upset that this so-called man of God, servant of God, is hanging out with these kinds of people. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. Notice they're talking to the disciples and not Jesus. 
It may be simply that they're talking to the disciples instead of Jesus because they don't want to go so far as to even enter the house where Jesus was because they wouldn't want to associate with those people. They've got their noses upturned. They've got their eyebrows raised. They've got their arms folded. They've got their shorts in a knot. And they are essentially saying, he should know better. He calls himself a holy man. He should not be dirtying himself by associating with such people. But Jesus' response to them is his third action in this passage. It's a shocking indictment. In the previous passage, we saw the scribes. And the scribes doubted and questioned Jesus' authority to proclaim forgiveness. Here, the Pharisees are doubting Jesus' authority based on what they perceive to be a lack of commitment to purity of association. But what Jesus tells these Pharisees is to go read the Bible because they don't understand it. Essentially, what he's saying is that they have the same problems as the Israelites did in Hosea's prophecy that Brian read just a few minutes ago, and that they need the same message themselves, which was a message filled with indictments. Look at verse 12. When Jesus heard it, heard what these Pharisees were saying, whether from a distance or someone told him, whatever, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who who are weak. And so Jesus is bluntly telling them, first of all, that they have it all wrong. He says, of course I'm spending time with these sinners. He's saying, I'm here to call sinners. He says, actually, at the end of verse 13, I, I'm here to bring healing to the sick, the spiritual sick in this case. But there's also a bit more bite to Jesus' words here. Because by saying, I'm not here for the well, I'm here for the I'm not here for the righteous. He can't be saying that there are some people who don't need him. There are righteous people who don't need him. Because everybody needs him. Everybody is unrighteous. There are none righteous, the scripture clearly says. Everyone is a sinner in need of Jesus. So what he's saying is that the people who don't think they need him are not the ones that he's focused on. Those who are well have no need of a physician. I came not to call the righteous at the end of verse 13. And so the well, the righteous, in these words of Jesus here, are these Pharisees. They're pretty sure they've got it all under control. As far as they're concerned, they are not desperately in need of Messiah to come save them from sin. They've got sin taken care of as far as they know. They do their sacrifices. They follow their rules. They keep their traditions. And so when Messiah comes, all they're going to need is for him to be their military conqueror and restore the kingdom of Israel to its glory. But of course we know Jesus was not there for military conquest. He was not there for political upheaval. He was there for the sick. He was there for the sinners. He was there to save. But the Pharisees didn't want him to save him, save them from sin because they didn't think they needed to be saved from sin. And so Jesus is essentially saying, I'm with them because I'm here for them. I'm not here for you. You don't even want what I have anyway. And my friends, unless we approach Jesus's conscious, approach Jesus with consciousness of 
our sin, of the heinousness of our sin, uh, with, with a groaning under its weight and grieving its wickedness, humbly regarding our helpless state, the grace of Christ will be of no use to us. But there's even more to what Jesus is saying here. I referenced it a little bit already. Look at the very beginning of verse 13. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. As I said a moment ago, Jesus essentially tells them to go read Hosea and try to understand it. This phrase, go and learn what this means, would have been rather insulting to a Pharisee. Some of these guys had whole portions of the Old Testament memorized. And the phrase, go and learn, is even more insulting because it was an explicitly rabbinical phrase when a rabbi as teacher would express his authority over those who needed to learn from him. And so what Jesus was doing here was exerting teaching authority over the Pharisees and saying that these men who supposedly knew more Bible data and knew that Bible data better than anyone else needed to go read their Bibles. These very men who prided themselves in their knowledge of and adherence to Scripture are the very ones that Jesus says, go and learn. That is astonishing to me. Now we read, Brian led us, of Hosea 6, but let's turn there again. We read this just a few minutes ago, but let's turn and look at it once more. Hosea chapter 6. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, you'll find that on page 754. Listen to these words. Hosea 6, 4 through 10. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I, this is the part that Jesus quotes, I desire steadfast love, or as the Septuagint translates it, mercy which is why Jesus used that word. I desire mercy. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. These are strong words from the Lord to his people through the prophet Isaiah. A word from the Lord has come to his people, and he is saying to them throughout that whole prophecy that they have and they are royally messed up. They are a disaster. Hosea 6 is a context of God's condemnation of Israel for their sin of idolatry and then the sins that came in its aftermath. And in fact, chapter 4 uses this phrase, a spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Sounds pretty serious to me. 
it's really, really bad. And if you just read through all of Hosea, it won't take you that long, you read through all of Hosea, you will see words of indictment over and over and over again. Indictment for idolatry, indictment for violence, indictment for fraud and for suing each other and for greed and for abuse and for cult prostitution, all because of the root at their heart of idolatry. And so Jesus tells these Pharisees to go read Hosea 6, which is a word about Israel's lack of repentance, about Israel's stubbornness, about their need to be mercifully loving to one another rather than obsessive about sacrificial accuracy. It doesn't mean, of course, that they were not to care at all about their sacrifices. Of course they were. But it means that their sacrifices, listen, their sacrifices were meaningless if their hearts were cold to God and one another. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with all you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so what is Jesus doing by saying to them, go and learn Hosea 6? He is indicting the Pharisees and telling them that they need to learn the meaning and message of a book that they might have actually already memorized about forsaking the Lord and righteousness and turning to idolatry and evil. So what Jesus is saying is that their avoidance of and disdain for tax collectors and sinners put them in the same boat as the Israelite apostates of Hosea, who preserved the external shell at the expense of being faithful to the heart of the law, love for God and others. The Pharisees claimed righteousness based on their external devotion to purity, to the system, and to what they deemed as righteous living, but totally missed the point which was love. That's what mercy in verse 13 of our text means. As I mentioned a moment ago, that word mercy in verse 13, the very beginning, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word chesed, which means steadfast love or covenant faithfulness. And so in other words, that chesed love, that faithful covenant love that God has for unworthy sinners like you and me is the kind of love that God wants his people to show to others. Faithful, merciful, gracious, undeserved. Now here's where this gets really hard for us, as if it isn't already. We've got to be honest with ourselves. Don't these Pharisees sound like us? We who consider ourselves all the labels, conservative, reformed, evangelicals in the American church today. Stay away from these kinds of people. Stay away from these groups. Make sure you're not touched at all by the ideas of the world. You'll be corrupted and unclean. Don't let your children be soiled by the world. We've got to cancel these Christians whose preferences on secondary or third order issues don't match with the best way. 
said it last week, I'm saying it this week, and you're going to keep hearing me say it on and on and on until you're long past sick of it. We need to see ourselves in these religious leaders and repent. We need to repent of our self-righteousness. We need to repent of our stubborn, cold-hearted, prideful, judgmental ways. These Pharisees are like the people in our circles who wag their heads at people in society who are lost and searching for meaning in their LGBTQ plus identity like searching in the dark. These Pharisees are like those in our circle who ridicule the left for their godless ways. These Pharisees are like those of us who condescendingly look down at the people who don't think or live by the Lord's way. They are like those of us who don't think that they have anything to be repentant of because we are just living the status quo. According to this passage before us today, it turns out you can know your Bible without actually knowing it. Turns out you can be so concerned about one good and necessary aspect of righteous living that you forget another one. In this case, mercy, love. Hosea's target audience was being indicted for unfaithfulness to the covenant, for greed, for deceit, for immorality. And you know what? The Pharisees probably would read a passage like Hosea 6 and think of the tax collectors and sinners as those who needed that message. They're greedy. They're abusive. They're immoral. They're not faithful to the covenant. Have you ever sat in a sermon and thought, boy, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this? I have. That's what the Pharisees probably thought when they read Hosea. Boy, those tax collectors and sinners are the problem. They're the ones that Hosea is talking about. They ought to read this passage and understand it. And then Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, God incarnate comes to them and says, go read that passage and understand it. He indicts them for covenant unfaithfulness, for abuse of others, for greed. He tells them to go and learn. And so that's why I say, friends, in the same way I believe Jesus' words are an indictment to us. The Pharisees were more invested in their efforts at distancing themselves from anything that could bring any sort of impurity on them than they were invested in the mission of God to bring good news to the lost. And so Jesus quoting Hosea 6.6 was an indictment on the Pharisees for their wrong preoccupation with ritual purity that then overrided their concern for sinful and broken people in need of God's grace. And it was that mission of salvation by grace that Jesus was on at that very moment. And that's the fourth and final action of Jesus, his saving mission. It's the whole point of this whole passage. Right after Jesus calls out these Pharisees for their self-righteousness and connects them to the sinful Israelites that Hosea's prophecy was reaming out, he says to them at the end of verse 13, I came not to call the righteous but sinners 
In other words, he came to save sinners, not stay away from them. Sinners in need of a savior. The spiritually sick in need of a physician. You see, my friends, throughout all the Gospels, and in Matthew specifically, Jesus is more confrontational with the religiously faithful leaders than with the people that were gathered with him at Matthew's house. With them, he is gentle and patient and compassionate, physician-like. He came to save those people. He came to save the worst of sinners, people who were lost, those that the religious snobs disliked the most. I say again, like the LGBTQ plus of our day, like those in our society who are mistakenly, tragically mistakenly under the impression that abortion is about freedom, like those whose views on social justice are leading them to a dangerous place. But Christ has come down and even reclined to sinners to call them to himself. He is not sitting high above waiting for them to clean up their act, waiting for them to show interest in him. No, while they are disinterested in him, and as Romans says, while they are still sinners, Christ condescends and dies for them. And my friends, that is the whole point. Jesus was on a mission to save sinners. And friends, we need to see ourselves in the tax collectors and sinners too, of course. We are the ones stained by sin in need of salvation. Sinners who must repent of sin and turn in faith to Jesus for salvation. And sinners who, if they trust in Jesus alone for salvation, his work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, are then transformed into new creatures. No longer greedy and immoral and deceitful and abusive or treacherous. And also no longer hypocritical, self-righteous and prideful like the Pharisees. Rather, brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in Christ, you are saved. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. And you have been and are being transformed. That is what Jesus came to do. That is the point of this passage, that Jesus came to call sinners. You see, those whose sins seem to them, to ourselves that is, to be less flagrant or less obvious or less shocking, often lack the awareness that we are just as much in need of saving grace as the ones we might consider to be the worst of sinners. Oh, my friends, may it never be that Redeemer Bible Church is characterized this way. Rather, may what characterizes us be the words of Paul in 1 Timothy 1, 13-17. Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I 
am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, when we remember that the grace of Christ reaches the worst of sinners, we respond with gratitude and with humility and with confidence. Let's pray together. Oh God, we are so in need of Jesus. All of us have in our nature sinfulness. All of us have as what characterized us before Christ. All of these same kinds of things. Whether it be the kind of shocking, more shocking things that some of these tax collectors and sinners were guilty of, or the self-righteous, perhaps more private things that the Pharisees would have been characterized with. And so as we have read this passage and as we have meditated on it and examined it together, Lord, would you please take your word and plant it down deep in us? Your word is promised to go forth and to be effective. And so we claim that promise that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word lasts forever. Use your word. Work in our hearts. May we be those who are not characterized in the sort of self-righteous, unmerciful manner of these Pharisees, but rather to have the same mission-mindedness of Jesus. I pray in his name. Let's take a few moments and continue in prayer quietly in our hearts before this text and before our Lord. Amen.